In the aftermath of the 2016 Brexit referendum, there was jubilation and lamentation in not quite equal proportion. Jubilation for the Leavers, of course, disappointment for the Remainers, no surprises there, perhaps. But researchers here at Warwick Business School have concluded that the fallout, for the losers at least, was much worse than mere disappointment. They uncovered evidence that while Leavers were much more satisfied with life in general after the EU referendum, Remainers suffered real mental distress, equivalent to chronic migraine. And in this Core Insights podcast for Warwick Business School, Nick Powtawee, Professor of Behavioural Science here, will be explaining why the effect was so severe and what the long-term implications of his team's research might be. First of all, Professor, were you surprised by what you found? We were surprised because we knew that we wanted to study the impact of the EU referendum on people's life satisfaction and their mental health. But we had no idea that for at least the the losers or the remainers, they would experience, you know, such a spike in terms of level of mental distress immediately after. Were you at all concerned by the severity of the reaction? I don't know if concern is the right word. We found that it has an almost equivalent impact as having a kind of migraine on your mental distress. So I should say a little bit about what mental distress, how we measure it. So we used what we call the general health questionnaire. So it asks you questions about whether you've been um, sleeping well recently, whether you've lost your confidence, uh, all these kind of things. And, And we found that with this usual state of mental health, it peaks with the level of, you know, uh, of, a, of a migraine. And obviously we should be concerned a little bit about that. But because it's a usual state and we found that later on that people do adapt to it fairly quickly. So it's not a permanent state. So yes, concerned about the immediate impact, but not so concerned about the long run effect of it. Now, do you think the Remainers themselves were prepared for the mental distress you describe? Or did it take them by surprise? I think it took them by surprise because we know that prior to the EU referendum, a lot of the betting markets predicted that Brexit only had 20% chance of happening. So most of uh, people who wanted to vote remains just didn't know. And maybe that would be the, the main explanation for this huge spike in the mental distress. What are we going to do now? Now, this may well be beyond the scope of the research, but how do you think they coped with it? Was it just part of the rough and tumble of life and political life or what? I think it is it's hard to know how people cope with it because we don't we didn't conduct the research on on how they cope with the aftermath. But since we found that over time people do revert back to their usual mental health state, we can only assume that they have coped with it. Partly might be to you know that they could probably talk to each you know to, to one another because we know from the literature that just just by speaking about your mental distress helps, uh, just by finding somebody who thinks the same as you do helps. So yeah, I think they did cope with it very well. In that because case. your research showed that the year before the referendum, both leavers and remainers were generally satisfied with life. So this referendum was clearly a watershed in their mental life, really. I think so. Although we did find some evidence that life satisfaction in the year prior to the the referendum year predicts whether or not you're going to vote leave or remain. So the people who report low life satisfaction in the year before that tend to 
be more likely to re report that they would, would also like to leave the EU. So you could say that, you know, unhappy people want change. And, and maybe partly that helped explain why this happened. And also in the fact that people who are who are remain, they're, they're fairly quite, you know, they, they are satisfied with their life. And, and this just came as a shock. <laughs> Now, describe to me in more detail how the mental distress manifested itself. You quote a migraine. So we're talking about headaches, tiredness, a feeling of fuzziness in the head. I probably need to explain that a little bit when we say that why is it has why the effect of the EU referendum has the same effect as, as a migraine. It's not that we saying that these are the symptoms of people who had experienced, um, you know, uh, the Remainers. So so not all Remainers went on to have migraine. What we did was we measured, you know, their mental distress or what happened afterwards. And then we know how, what is the effect of having a migraine have on your mental distress. And the effect of it is equivalent. So if you have a migraine, you tend to report higher higher level of mental distress and that effect is similar to if you, I so you don't have a migraine, but you just experience a loss in the EU referendum. So that's what it is, really. So not all Remainers had a migraine. It just had the same effect on mental distress as the migraine. So it was a little bit more than a pain in the neck for them. Yeah, I, I say so. Um, it's because we need to quantify it somehow. And, and I think we just chose migraine because it's a common thing that people experience and it's a it's like you said, it's more than a pain in the neck. OK, well, let's get on to the research itself. How did you set up the survey and what were your methods? OK, so we, we were relying on a, a huge data set, I think run by University of Essex, called the Understanding Society. So the Understanding Society data set started collecting data, I think, ever since 2009. Every year, about 40,000. So it's one of the largest um, household surveys in the UK, about 40,000 individuals. And in that particular year, in 2016, I guess after um, David Cameron announced the, that we're going to have a referendum, uh, the Understanding Society thought, oh, this would be great to start collecting data on people's preferences. So in uh, leading up to 2016, in January, P, uh, they started collecting people's, you know, asking people, uh, what is your preference? What do you want to leave? What do you remain uh, prior uh, to the referendum and after the referendum? So we took that data set, which is about, I think, about 34,000 individuals. And then we looked at, OK, the date of the interview. So we know when the referendum happened. So that's 23rd of June 2016. Since the date of the referendum, uh, the people who were interviewed before and after are kind of randomised in the sense that they weren't selected based on their income. They, were, they weren't selected based on their preference. So we can measure people's well-being before, then we can measure people's well-being after the referendum. And assuming that the interview dates was randomised, in, in, in a way that it was just random across people, there shouldn't be any selection effect in a, in the way that they would... Uh, when I said selection effect, it's like when you only select to interview people, uh, some people but not the others. This didn't happen, so we can actually infer what we call causality. So since the EU referendum happened, we can track, OK, what happens before? Does it lead to a drop or increase in life satisfaction, in the level of mental health of people? So on average, we didn't find the effects at all. So this is grouping everybody together. So before and after the referendum, absolutely 
no change in terms of life satisfaction and very little change in the mental distress of people. But when we uh, distinguish them into leavers and remainers, that's when we find the effect, the divergent of people's mental health and well-being. And what sort of questions were asked in this household survey? Well, it was plenty of questions. So um, we know about their income, we know about their marital status, their health status, their education, uh, where, they, where they live. Uh, we also have questions about their uh, life satisfaction, which is one of our main outcome variables. So basically, it's a question that asks in the survey, how satisfied or dissatisfied are you with your life overall uh, on a scale from one to seven? So one being completely dissatisfied, seven being completely satisfied. And then we have a battery of questions about their mental stress, uh, things like whether you've been sleeping um, well in the past four weeks, uh, whether you've been you know, losing conf- your, your self-esteem, your, your confidence, your self-worth, uh, whether you feel happy or unhappy on a day-to-day basis. So those are the questions that we had in, the, in that survey. Because one surprising finding was that reporting low-life satisfaction a year ahead of the referendum was a strong predictor for people going on to vote leave. I mean, what sorts of things lay behind that, do you think? Well, I think the level of dissatisfaction um, in general make us feel that we need a change of some sort. Uh, and I guess it's, n- it's not going to be a very surprising finding to many people that when you feel unhappy, you just want to change. You're just not content about thing, how things are going. Uh, so this let, be a, let this be a lesson to all politicians. I mean, we've been measuring people's well-being in, in the UK for the last, I don't know how many years now, more than 10 years. Uh, lots of studies have shown that these are predictive of how they vote, of whether or not the incumbent will remain in the government. So uh, we should start tracking and, and studying these life satisfaction data or mental health well, or well-being data to see whether or not are we keeping the citizens satisfied. Because, as you say, the lesson that it might be teaching the politicians is that when they have a serious issue to decide on, they may well leave political, indeed intellectual, reasons aside and just go with the way they feel, anything for a better life. Well, exactly. I mean, we tend to believe that when people make decisions, voting decisions, you know, they make rational and logical, you know, based on all available information. And we found that it's not that true at all. You know, we're we're pushed by our own emotions, especially the way we feel at that particular moment. And that and, and the way we feel might have been pushed by the information we receive in the media. You know, as you know, fake news <laughs> could make us feel really angry and that could potentially have an impact on the way we vote. I mean, I've carried, I've done other studies that show that if you win a lottery, you're more likely to vote for conservative. If you have a daughter, you're more likely to vote for the Labour, <laughs> for example. So, so, so it's not just that um, we behave rationally all the time. We can be pushed in so many ways from from non-political factors, non-economic factors, and just purely emotion. So, in voting to leave. They may not have thought, well, this is going to cure all my ills, rather like that lottery win, but it is probably going to improve my quality of life. Well, um, it could. Uh, we don't know yet. We don't. I mean, we, it hasn't happened yet, so we don't know whether it would eventually lead to that. Although lots of studies have shown prior to the referendum, in, from uh, mostly from London School of Economics, show that 
the economic forecast it looks likely to be worse following um, Brexit, if Brexit ever happened, um, it would be worse, it would be more worse, if that's the word, for people who actually vote f- to leave. So in terms of economics, it's not looking great. But in, you know, at, at the time of people voting, maybe people are not voting based on what they think in terms of, you know, how am I going to benefit economically from this? They might just, you know, being pushed emotionally by some other issues, and they just vote like that. So the likelihood is that, well, certainly their life satisfaction and mental distress will be affected in some way by the reality of economic and social change that leaving the EU is going to bring about. Exactly. Um, and But at, a, at that time, we might not you know, kind of be fully aware that that's going to, that, you know, we're going to be affected by that. But surely, I mean, you know, this is still subject for further research. Um, we know for certain that you know economic factors are important to your life satisfaction. Your livelihood is extremely important to your life satisfaction. And perhaps factors that drive you to vote the way you vote might in the long run have no impact at all in your future <laughs> life satisfaction or your mental health. Well, let's come back to the uh, Remainers whose mental distress you highlighted. Was it transient or is it likely to be long-lasting? Well, we found it to be, um, you know, transient at the time. We saw, if I remember correctly, uh, kind of quite immediate rise in terms of level of mental distress. But that kind of dissipated three or four months afterwards. Um, I guess simply because, when, you know, people just adapt to it and come to the fact of it. And the fact that it hasn't really, you know, have a real impact in their life yet because it was just an information thing it was just disappointment kind of forecasting to the future what's going to happen to me and immediately after the result came out people might dwell on it you know each day and every day but soon afterwards it's kind of you know kind of our attention kind of drift towards something else even so though if we're talking about you know, self-worth, confidence, sleep patterns, comparable to this migraine, as you said. This is quite a serious public health issue, isn't it? Well, it is. Of course, it would be if it's chronic, in a sense, that people don't adapt to it. I mean, from th- this, is, this is beyond from this paper, but we know um, from studying, I mean, I've been studying people's happiness for over 10 years now there are certain things that we adapt to and certain things that we don't adapt to so for example we adapt fairly completely to bereavement you know losing somebody we love within a year or two but uh, ironically we don't you know compare to bereavement which is really really heart-wrenching unemployment is something that we never adapt to and people remain depressed so if you remain unemployed for for many many years you just remain very, very depressed compared to when you were employed, for example. So only if it leads to chronic mental distress, then yes, that would be a problem, a public health problem. There was another um, sort of variable, if you like, high earners. They, according to your survey, were also likely to vote remain. Oh, yes. People who are higher, in, higher income earners are more likely to vote remain. People in the poorer areas um, tend to vote leave. People of lower educational background tend to vote leave. So there is a clear split in that sense. And you also discovered evidence that suggested something about the the social acceptance of admitting 
voting one way or the other. Tell me a bit about that. Well, we wanted to to test whether or not there is any differential impact. If let's say if you're the only Leave voter in a district where the majority vote remains. We want to see whether or not does it hurt you more uh, to be in that area compared to if you vote leave in in let's say in the leave area. I don't think we found any impact and any, any difference. Um, it doesn't matter which district you are. If you vote remain, you're going to report a higher level of distress, uh, regardless of whether or not more people in your area vote leave or remain. So where are you going next? What have you found this time that might pave the way for future research? Well, we want to know if or when it finally happened. How does that impact people's well-being? Again, because it's going to lead to real change. I'm also interested in whether or not how people of different characteristics cope if there is such an impact on people's mental health. Are certain individuals more resilient to these kind of changes than others? And who are they, basically? Yeah. So that, that's the questions that I have in mind for the moment. Now it's very interesting that um, Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's chief advisor, thought that quote the educated Remainer campaigner types, as he put it, fail to read the mood of the country, and perhaps. When they didn't, they feel, felt rather depressed as a result. But do you think then that education is not necessarily protection against this mental stress? It might actually exacerbate it. Well, as we know, uh, education often comes with expectation. And expectation is never good when it's not met in the reality. So, so maybe that's what it is. And people who are highly educated might expect that. There's no way this would have happened, and maybe they are the one. I mean, we haven't looked at it in the data, but 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 that could be a hypothesis that maybe they have suffered a lot worse than people who didn't expect so much from the referendum of of some of some sort of results. So you can say that there could be a link, potential link between higher educated people and the extent of disappointment, if you like. And you think that might be geographically spread as well? That there might be people in the northern towns who felt one way, less probably distressed because they got what they wanted, and those in the metropolitan bubble, the big cities in the south, feel pretty grim about it. Yeah, I think that's something that we didn't really look into that well. But I, but it, it is a sound hypothesis that if people. Go on thinking, believing that they, you know, this is a sure thing. This is what they're going to get, and did not get it, and they know that there's a lot at stake from not getting it. Surely, surely that must have had much of an impact in their lives and their expectation and their well-being than people who kind of like, yeah, we got what we didn't think we were going to get, <laughs> and that probably partly explained why the leavers are so happy after because they didn't expect. Well, finally, let's look to the future, and I realise this is taking you beyond the immediate research you've carried out. But certainly, in the coming months, there's going to be pressure on the Prime Minister to give the green light to another referendum in Scotland. Two related questions here: the first, should Nicola Sturgeon take your findings on board before actively campaigning for that second referendum on Scottish independence, given the mental distress that might ensue? Well, I don't know whether that should be the advice that she should take, but she would. She should definitely take the、uh, the findings as、uh, as an 
indication that people's mental health and people's life satisfaction leading to the referendum is important predictor. Is an important predictor of whether or not they're going to vote for an independent. If it's driven by unhappy people, and uh, maybe that's what, that's who she might want to target because those are the those will be her votes because those are people who really want change. You know, you know that that we we we're not happy with the way things are, and 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 in a way that's what she's going to get, and in the way that she could. You know, you could argue that she could raise the happiness of these individuals by having, the, you know, Scotland being independent from the rest of the UK. Whether or not she should pay too much attention on the level of mental distress that could potentially arise for the people who did not get what they want, I don't know. Because we found from the EU referendum, people do adapt to it. I mean, in the, in the, in the very, very same way that peop, uh, the leavers who were, who were happier from the referendum, they also adapted to it. They habituate. <laughs> so it's not that they, it's going to be long-lasting. Uh, it kind of diverts back to, to where they were before. So the second question coming from that is, might Boris Johnson now be tempted to veto that referendum on Scottish independence on public health grounds? Uh, I think it would be a silly thing to do to to if if the prime minister wanted to do that because like I said people do adapt to it yes people will experience disappointment if they don't get what they want but we see that this is not a long lasting thing I think he should focus more on if brexit does happen how does he ensure that the livelihood, which is a much more important determinant of your well-being over the long run, would only change for the better or would not deteriorate too much that it affects, you know, you know, or, or make it much worse for people? That's what I think. But either way, the message to politicians is it's not just the economy, it's not just the NHS and schools and defence. It's also mental health that's part of the mix. Yes, I think they should pay more attention to these kind of data set, happiness data, mental health data, because they are very, very useful for them to track. And and as we know, variations of these data are not determined only by that, you know, how the the, the performance of the economy. One of the most important things is community. Do people feel safe? Uh, do people feel that their life will get better in the future? You know, all of this, a lot of the things are not related to economics at all. So they should more pay, pay more attention to it and, and keep trying to keep people satisfied with their life so that they could well, be elected again. That's what we found. And do you think perhaps the Prime Minister ought to start recruiting from the ranks of behavioural scientists like yourself to give him guidance? Well, definitely. <laughs> I think so. I think we already have a lot of those, actually, in you know people who are working on happiness. Um, I mean, when I used to be at LSE, we give advice to people in the Cabinet Office all the time. Gus O'Donnell who has been very, very interested in this. He's been one of the champions of well-being. Richard Layard, um, David Halpin, for example. So we do already have those individuals close by. And, and yeah, so the Prime Minister should listen more to those people. Well, that's new on me. Good to know that behavioural scientists like you have access to the corridors of power. Professor Pautawi, thank you. And you can read more about behavioural science on the Warwick Business School website, along with articles on healthcare management, finance, strategy, leadership, entrepreneurship and innovation. I'm Trevor Barnes, and this has been a Core Insights podcast for Warwick Business School.